Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading researchers, authors, and clinicians discussing issues in attachment theory. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please visit tkcchaddock.org. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I am your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, joining you here from Chaddock. My guest today is Annette Cusson. Annette is uh, a Canadian therapist who also works extensively with the adult attachment interview. She has written several books. She was on the show back in 2020 for her book, Attachment, A New Way of Understanding Yourself. And today we're going to be talking about her book, Secure Parent, Secure Child, How a Parent's Adult Attachment Shapes the Attachment of Their Child. So please stay tuned. I think you are really going to enjoy hearing about her work specifically related to adult attachment classifications and how those impact our relationships with our children. Supporting children and families who have experienced great loss and endured extreme trauma is a daunting task. At Chaddock, we have the experience and longevity to understand the type of support needed to keep the best and brightest engaged with this work. In July, the Knowledge Center at Chaddock will launch the next session of the Developmental Trauma and Attachment Institute for helpers who seek to be rejuvenated and revitalized in their work with children and families. This type of renewal and confidence is a natural byproduct of gaining specialized knowledge, advanced skills, consultation, guidance, mentorship, and most importantly, being in a community providing the experience of being seen and understood. We have designed an experience and a soft place to land where all of these needs will be met in one central place. For more information on the Developmental Trauma and Attachment Institute, to join the waitlist for more information or to sign up, visit tkcchaddock.org. So Annette, it's great to have you back on the Attachment Theory and Action podcast. I was looking back and it was 2020, spring 2020, that you were on before talking about your first book. And then you're saying, oh, you're going to slow down. And what do you know? You write another book. <laughs> I'm still saying I'm slow down, but I haven't, you know, I do have another book in mind. So I'm not sure that'll ever happen. Yeah, well, it's wonderful to have you back again. Appreciate you being here. So could you share with listeners um, what made you decide to write Secure Parent, Secure Child, you know, how that all came about just to orient them to this book and a bit of the context and history behind it? Okay, I'd love to. So I became interested in adult attachment, of course, partly out of working with adopted uh, children and their families. Um, And I think what was really striking to me is, you know, we had a clear model of how to help the parents of these kids. And some parents really could use our interventions, use our um, just our ways of helping them and others couldn't. And so I became more interested in those parents that were just having such a difficult time not personalizing the, you know, the problems that their kids had, because we would really help all parents understand that adopted kids come with compromises. 
So in becoming more interested in those parents, and since I already was really interested in adult detachment, I began to think, well, what is the adult detachment of these parents? And is that a really strong influencer in limiting them and not being able to apply kind of what we knew would help these kids? And so that, again, that led me, of course, because I already was interested in marrying me and uh, the adult detachment categories. And of course, you know, the research is quite clear that um, but if you know the adult attachment of the parent, at least in the strange situation, that you can determine uh, the attachment of the child. So I began exploring and reading more about that and really just came to kind of believe that I think that just teaching parents techniques, even though, you know, we knew that these were helpful, was very limiting because of the attachment of the parent and that those parents that had insecure attachments we're just going to have a very hard time applying kind of the interventions that we were suggesting. And I actually began thinking, maybe this is even just a setup for failure, you know, because, you know, we would say you have to be present. I and mean, that's a big kind of buzzword for parents. But if you're a parent that's, you know, highly anxious, has a preoccupied attachment, that's very difficult for you to be present in a consistent way. So that's what led me to think that it would be really helpful uh, for parents if they could understand their attachment, uh, their attachment category, again, in a very non-judgmental way, because that's really what's important is that, you know, it's, it's a way of understanding yourself. It's not a way of pathologizing or saying, you know, you're a failure because you have an insecure attachment. So the thrust of the book is really just to help parents understand their attachment category, how it influences their parenting. And again, then, you know, suggestions for change. So that's sort of how this came about. And I also, you know, really wanted to kind of present this in as simple and clear a way as possible. Because again, this is a self-help book for parents. So, and it can be a kind of overwhelming concept, you know. So I tried to make this as clear and, and simple as possible. Well, I remember this from our interview previously, Annette, that we had such a parallel process or trajectory might be a better word of this because I was working again with children who were in foster care, children who are adopted and working with parents that really wanted to be the best they could be for their children. as therapists, you know, we like to do all this psychoeducation about the brain and attachment and regulation. And they would, not all of them, but many of them, they would be taking that information intellectually in. But then when it came, and, and this is what fueled my interest in the adult attachment inter- interview, then when it came time to the word I use is execute these ideas, skills, things, it sort of fell apart and they they went back to much more i believe automatic and unconscious ways of being and yeah yeah so we've had a very similar experience yes yeah i remember that as well Um, yes yes and i think that something so important that you said is being gentle about this and not judgmental that this is a way based on our own history of relationships that we have a tendency to be it's not a psychiatric diagnosis or something so yeah and it's not a blame it's not a blame of parents and it's not a blame of their parents and that's really important that this isn't 
a blame theory. So yes. we have to really yeah, make that clear as well. Um, and I'm so happy to be talking with you about this today, Annette, because I think there are a lot of therapists that are seeing children with attachment issues and excluding the caregiver. You know, maybe a traditional uh, play therapy process where you go back to the room and the child's in the play therapy room, you share some words maybe before and after the session with the parents. But the idea that you can move towards attachment security separate from the caregiver is really not consistent with attachment theory. Yes, I, I totally agree, Karen. And, and it, it still amazes me that that particular model is in place and applied frequently. So um, I agree completely that with, you know, without including um, the caregiver, I don't see how we can promote change in the child. Um, yeah. Yeah. So moving on specifically to the book, you talk about in the very beginning, you know, what is adult attachment? How does that impact parenting? Could you share with listeners maybe just a little summary of that opening and your ideas about that in the book? So again, I really tried to explain adult attachment and again, as clear a way as possible and that um, that one can understand their attachment even from looking at patterns of behavior. So again, certainly the more, you know, I guess accurate way of determining your adult attachment is to do an adult attachment interview. But for most parents, that's probably unrealistic because there aren't many people trained in it and the cost of doing it. So I do, you know, try to help uh, parents understand that, again, through their own patterns in not only parenting, but how they perceive themselves in their own relationships, that they can get, again, an impression of their adult attachment. And then I do talk about, again, the research that shows that if you do know your adult attachment, uh, one, you can we can predict what the attachment of the child will be. But I also really try and focus on both the strengths and the challenges that come out of knowing your adult attachment. Like it's not just sort of a, a negative experience that your, your children will have with you. There, there are strengths that come with even the insecure attachment categories. And then again, so, you know, I try to help people determine what their adult attachment is by looking again at their, their behavior, their perception of self. And then we talk about then how does that influence um, your parenting, um, the effects on parenting. Yes. So could you, you know, before we get into that, give maybe a primer on the different classifications yeah. of the AAI, the adult attachment interview, and a little description. So when we talk about, you know, how they impact parenting, the listeners have some clarity around what the different ones are. Yeah. So, th so this is a classification that Mary Main um, has established. And again, she... Uh, came to be really interested in adult attachment uh, by trying to understand the attachment, typically of mothers, of the children that they had seen in a strange situation. And again, these have been now replicated over and over throughout the world. So they, they're very credible for sure. Secure attachment in children is called autonomous attachment in adults. And it's, it's a lovely term because I think it really implies that adults who are secure um, have both the capacity then for 
intimacy, union, and autonomy, that they are also independent and also value sort of their own time, but are very capable of being close to people. So as parents, they have, you know, the capacity to be available to their children, to ensure that they're there for comfort, for affection, for fun, and they get pleasure. They really get pleasure out of parenting. And typically, because they are going to offer a child a really secure base, that child is likely to have a secure attachment. So we, we don't see those too much in our therapeutic practices, though. But So the first one is autonomous. And then what was called anxious ambivalent in children is called preoccupied in adults. And again, it really makes sense because preoccupied adults typically had inconsistently available parents. And now they are really hypersensitive to rejection, abandonment, unavailability. Um, but why it's called preoccupied, it's like that part of the brain just goes round and round and round. Thinking about, you know, why didn't my boyfriend call me when he said he would? Why didn't my girlfriend show up when she said she would? My spouse said he or she would call me or be home at six and they're not. And because of that, sensitivity to being unavailable, that's all they, they can think about. So again, and again, what they have is really poor affect regulation. So because mm -hmm. of that, they're really not consistently available to their child. And so again, these then become children who really uh, have to figure out how, to get, how do I get my parent available? And they become again, also dysregulated, intense in their affect. And that's how we see the cycle. And the other kind of insecure attachment, which is called avoidant to children, is dismissing in adulthood. And these are, again, adults who really dismiss the value of attachment. They really learned, again, they had unavailable parents themselves, so really learned to sort of repress needs, wants, feelings, um, and have great difficulty then being attuned to the needs, wants, feelings of their kids. So they tend to value achievement, activities. So these are parents that might be involved, you know, in the academic pursuits of their kids or in the extracurricular activity, but are not emotionally available to their children. And then we have what's called disorganized in children, which is unresolved in adults. And these are parents who have suffered some sort of trauma, early loss, sexual, physical, emotional abuse, severe neglect. And because of that, again, they see relationships as pretty unsafe, and they don't have an organized way of being in relationships. But as parents, they are really inconsistently available, but in the sense of these are children that just don't know what to expect from that parent. Sometimes that parent is loving. Sometimes that parent is angry, violent. So again, these kids, are their children are often very frightened of these parents and don't know what to expect. So again, so there's secure attachment and there are three types of insecure attachments similar to children. Yeah. And I think that what you were talking about there at the end about unresolved, I want to emphasize that the first three are organized. And if somebody has an organized or predictable way of responding, even if it's not the optimal one, we would hope for secure the child, the baby can develop a strategy because in general, they know what's going to happen. And they do, we see in the strange situation that they do. But the really difficult thing about disorgan disorganized um, classification is you can't, you can't find a strategy. Exactly. So it is much more frightening and 
disorganizing for the child because, again, they don't know what to expect and can't predict that. So you're right. They don't have an organized strategy. So that's an important concept that, that even though children might have an insecure way of engaging a caregiver, it is an organized strategy. They learned that if I do this, my caregiver pays attention to me somehow, right? So right. Uh, yeah, it's a good point. Thanks, Karen. Yeah. And um, I was also thinking when you were talking how when you brought up the first classification autonomous and we're giving the lovely explanation of that, you know, preoccupied used to be called entangled. And, you know, I think that this idea of uh, preoccupied and autonomous, they, they, they do seem different, but something about that entangled word, like, really, I feel captures a, fe- a feeling of, of what this is and that you're not, I think this goes back to our earlier discussion, autonomous people have the autonomy to incorporate these new ideas and these new strategies that we're trying to teach, whether we want to call it therapeutic parenting or attuned parenting or going through circle of security, whatever it is. Um, They are free enough from their own entanglements inside themselves, so to speak, um, that they can come forward and be available and do those things. So um, I just think it's, was really great how you were describing that first yeah, that's a great word entanglement i'm gonna i'm gonna use that one <laughs> yeah, so probably get scolded by mary main since it was changed but i, I can't help by uh but uh evolve yes yeah but but it, it just captures something different um but she well uh, you know that's a good point because you know people that are preoccupied maybe really like over involved with their children tangled so that's you know uh-huh. another aspect of being preoccupied is then you can be over involved with your yeah. children's needs not their yes yeah. yeah well and then of course i would um appreciate because this is the one that helpers um therapists parent coaches, whoever's out there trying to help the earn secure category is such an important one. And I wondered if you could talk about that for listeners. So earn security is a lovely concept and of course, a very hopeful one. Um, again, that, you know, Mary Main developed saying because what they discovered, I think, from the adult detachment interview is that there were people that were describing some really um, difficult childhood experiences, and yet they scored secure on the AAI. So this is how this idea of earned security, I think, developed, which means that we can have, have we can have difficult childhood experiences, but for a number of reasons, we can come out earned secure. Um, and that may be because there was someone else in our lives when we were children that were available, but with enough consistency, availability, intensity. Like it has to be somebody that is like uh, a parent, a parent-like figure. So if you have that in your life, you might come out insecure or you can luck in choose a partner that somehow you know treats you really well even though that's not necessarily your expectation and you're able to internalize it you know uh, wow i guess i am deserving of good treatment and that somehow becomes a, a part of your self-perception or you can go into therapy and again you can have you know 
develop a really good relationship with your therapist and internalize that. So um, there's different ways that you can become insecure, but it is, again, a really valuable concept and a, such a hopeful one that says, even if you have difficult childhood experiences, that you can develop our insecurity. And I think for us as therapists, it is a, you know, an essential way of understanding that through the therapeutic relationship that, again, that our insecure clients can develop uh, our insecurity. So I love that concept. Well, as you said, it gives us hope. We History does not have to be destiny. That's exactly right. That's, you know, yeah, it's a, it's a great um, sense. Otherwise, we'd all we could pack it up, you know, I mean, if, if, if we can't, you know, change, if someone's internal working model can't change and move towards security and resolution of some of these hard things that have happened, you know, that's kind of what we're all about. So we, we love that this dad is out there. <laughs> but the other thing, Karen, that I've come to believe and accept is that we may all be left with traits of some of our insecure experiences, personalities, whatever. And again, I think if we can accept those non-judgmentally, be very aware of them, be very aware when they're playing out, you know, in our close relationships, again, with, you know, partner spouses and our children, we can also ensure that they are not unconsciously kind of controlling us. So I think it is, you know, really also helpful to understand that, you know, that you can say, yeah, I kind of understand that that's my preoccupied, you know, that part of me is kind of, you know, living out right now and I can control it or I can talk to my partner about it or older kids. I can even say, sorry, kids, you know, uh, I was having a really difficult day today or whatever. So I also think that that is a really important way of understanding yourself as well, that kind of non-judgmental acceptance that you may be left with, traits of, you know, of insecure attachment. Well, yes, I, I appreciate you highlighting that. And even this is getting a little bit into the weeds. You and I are both trained in using the coding system of the AAI, but even people who are secure, there's subcategories where you might be secure and a little bit dismissing, or you might be secure and a little bit preoccupied, you know, so it is true, you know, and we have different ways that relationships are going to bring up feelings inside of us that can be dealt with in a compassionate way with ourselves, hopefully. Yes, exactly. You moved into, in the book, a lot more examples of the neurobiology of parenting and then examples of how different classifications might interact with their children in real world. You know, this I, sometimes I think, you know, we have this interview and we have this concept, but what does it really look like? And your book does such a good job of helping people understand that. Oh, thanks, Karen. Yeah. Yeah. So what comes to mind first that you want to say about the neurobiology of parenting? You know, it's a very complex kind of a, a concept. So and I try to focus more on how do we help children become affect regulated through the relationship with the parent. And I think research knowledge really shows that, you know, when infants are born, they really don't have the capacity for self-regulation and really rely on the caregiver uh, to, you know, to create the environment, to respond to that child in a way that, again, 
help that child not so much be self-regulated, but know that that caregiver is going to respond to them empathically. And therefore, again, the stressors that, you know, operate, make them cry because they're hungry, all the various things that they need. So that when that caregiver responds, that really helps that the stressors kind of get lower and the kid becomes, the child becomes self-regulated. Um, and gradually, we have what's called co-regulation that, again, the child signals what their needs are, caregiver responds in a timely and accurate way, and again, that child really then can calm down. And in time, that child internalizes the capacities to self-regulate. And it really is a brain and chemical uh, response in the brain. So what we're really trying to help caregivers understand is that their response to their child, um, their response to the signals in that child are really what help that brain develop the balance between chemicals that really, that are the stress chemicals that really help that child signal to the chemicals that are really going to help that child calm down, get regulated, and then have a balance. And that's very much based on the responses of the caregiver. So although it's a big responsibility, the onus is on the caregiver, um, that is, in fact, you know, um, neurologically uh, the reality that, you know, parents need to really, one, understand the signals of their kids and then be calm responding to them. Um, so again, depending on your adult attachment, you're either going to have, you know, a, a fairly easy time uh, responding in a calm way or you're not. Um, yes. Uh, and, and it's important to understand that, how important it is to be able to respond to your child, again, in, in a tune. So you really get what's going on inside your child and in a calm way. Yes. Yeah. So so there's a whole chapter on that, on the neurology, mm -hmm. the neurobiology of parenting and how important it is in helping children become self-regulated. Yeah, I think it's so good that you have that chapter because I think sometimes people underestimate this. They're thinking, let's just say someone's like, well, I'm not a very warm, fuzzy parent or, you know, you know, just whatever these little slogans are that, that I think people minimize, you know, this is just a psychology and whether you're this way, but it really relationships shape the brain. And, and that's really fascinating and kind of scary, as you said. I remember hearing one of Alan Shore's lectures years ago when he said the mother's right brain downloads to the baby's right brain in a conversation of limbic systems. And I never forgot that. And it really kind of worried me, though, for, you know, parents. Well, for for myself, of course, because as therapists, we're always completely paranoid that we're messing all this up. But <laughs> but also for parents that I was apologize to my child many times. <laughs> yeah, but but also for parents that I knew had very poor regulation themselves, and perhaps you know this was part of the reason their child was in foster care. And you know, so what is down? What's downloading? What does that caregivers? limbic system function like yeah it's just mind-blowing to look at the biological component of relational interactions oh exactly so that's what i'm trying to emphasize but again not to frighten parents by this and, and certainly not not to blame them but really to understand this and then you know then i move it into 
you know, if you have this particular kind of attachment category, then regulating yourself is going to be hard or you may be overregulated, and that's also not, not good for children's brain development. So that's, so then, you know, again, I start to try and look at more specific things that happen in that parent-child relationship based on the attachment. And I certainly try to give examples, as you've mentioned, um, and then to give sort of guidelines on really the areas you really need to be working on. So let's talk a little bit. Uh, there was this one scene. We'll just try to get it across just with this one scene. I know in print, it can be harder than in con conversation could be harder than reading it in print. But there was one example that you shared about a parent picking up the child at daycare and the child's really excited and wants to talk about a movie they saw and some other things. And you kind of give some examples of different responses. So could you share with listeners like what you the gist of what you said a secure parent might respond to with that? Yeah, so I give this scenario of, you know, a mother coming to pick up her child at daycare and the child's had two incidents happen. One, a really kind of pleasurable one that she saw, you know, they watched the movie Mary Poppins and she really wants to tell, you know, her mother about this. And the other is that, you know, a little boy hit her in, in, in the, the daycare. And so she just sort of immediately, you know, throws both of these uh, experiences at her mother. But what I try to do is to differentiate what a preoccupied parent might respond and, and um, again, a dismissing parent and then a secure parent. So again, a dismissing parent is going to sort of really just try and get her kid organized and let's go home and, you know, isn't really listening to what this, this kid is saying, um, but just saying, where's your backpack? And, you know, sweetie, we just got to get going, you know, because um, I have to get home, I have to make dinner and I have to, you know, um, be there when daddy and your brother comes home. And well, that's nice, you know, if you watch the movie, but it's really not uh, listening and attuned to her, her child just goes into the functional things, right? right. So, whereas again, a secure to parent who also still has to get home and make dinner is going to be able to say, well, sweetie, why don't you tell me all about Mary Poppins where, when we're in the car? But you know what? Let's go talk to Susan, the daycare staff, and see what happened, you know, with the boy that hit you, right? Mm -hmm. So because she realizes that something negative happened and she really has to deal with that and does it in this very calm but also practical way, right? So deals with the one, you know, event about with the daycare. And then in the car really is really listening, whereas a dismissing parent isn't really going to be listening to this excited, you know, excited child's talking about Mary Poppins, which was really an exciting experience for her. Um, so again, it's trying to um, differentiate that if you're dismissing, you're going to be really focused on the practical things I have to do and totally miss out on, again, connecting with your child's experiences. Um, and that's a real loss for both of them, right? Whereas if you are, again, uh, an autonomous parent, you can manage both the practical stuff and you really are attuned to your child. So that's just one example that I give. Right. Um, what would you say about a preoccupied parent in that circumstance? So again, a preoccupied parent is also going to come kind of with that anxiety is probably if her child is still trying to say, but mommy, I want to talk about this. She's just going to get angry at her child and say, come on, we have to go like this is, you know, so again, she's going to be angry at her child, not regulated, just and totally unattuned to the child. 
Um, and if she's going to deal with, you know, the the episode of, of this child's going to the kid hurt her child, well, again, she's going to personalize that. She's going to be very angry at the daycare staff. How could this have happened? And again, she's going to be um, angry and dysregulated um, and totally, again, miss out on, you know, that this is about her child. Um, and again, it's going to be, again, so anxious about getting home and doing what she has to do that she's also going to be annoyed at her kid trying to say, but mommy, I want to tell you about the movie. And she's going to mm-hmm. say, well, I've got to get home. And, you know, I've got lots to do. And again, just miss out on connecting with your child's experience. Um, so, yeah, so, um, and this child is going to learn. There's no point telling my my mommy, my daddy, you know, my caregiver about the experience with, you know, the happy experience I had, because what's the point? They're not going to be listening to me. Um, and maybe with a preoccupied mom, this child is going to have to intensify and say, mommy, I really want to tell you about my my watching the movie, right? But it's going to have to do this much more dramatically. Children learn. There's no point in telling my parent they're not interested in me or I have to tell them in a, you know, a highly dramatic, intense way and then they will pay attention to me. And that's what kids internalize and come to believe that's the way they need to be in relationships. So that's what I try to convey sort of um, throughout the book. So I give examples of how the very different categories of parenting will respond to that child. Yes, yes. Well, let's move on to the concept of rupture and repair, (laughs) because, right, we can't, no one can get this right 100% of the time, secure attachment or not, um, we are going to have ruptures in the relationship. So maybe defining some of that and talking. Except for you and me, Karen, of course, we're (laughs) now... Right. No. Yeah. So, so again, rupture and repair is, you know, a concept that's been kind of in the field for some time now. I think that evolved out of the work that we all did with adopted kids, foster kids. Um, but I think it's just such a useful one for the reason that you're saying that we all will have ruptures in the relationship with our children. You know, when we reprimand a child for something that, you know, they did, whether it's, you know, spilt a whole glass of milk or broke something because they were playing with it, we all get annoyed at our kids and angry at our kids. And when we experience anger, typically then repress, we're going to touch with that loving, caring feeling for our kids. And that's absolutely normal. So, you know, so to have the rupture is absolutely normal. What's really important is the repair. So, you know, the kid comes home, you know, if it's a teenager, it's one of the examples I gave, you know, kid comes home late after, you know, they had a curfew and, you know, the parent's angry at the child and, you know, reprimands the child and they consequence the child. And in that angry phase, again, that parent is not going to be feeling love. What's really important is the repair that you can consequence your child and then you have to go back and talk about what happened in a really, again, loving, caring, concerned way and ensure that your child understands that you can have conflict, you can repair it, and that love is absolutely returned. Because also we know the kids that don't experience that, so certainly I learned that about adopted kids um, who would not have had that kind of rupture and repair experience either in orphanages or if they came from disorganized and abusive families would have certainly known a parent being angry at them but not and then 
repairing it. And for those kids, they feel a deep sense of shame. So if you don't get the repair, then you end up feeling that you are a terrible child, a terrible human being, as opposed to a child that did something that was unacceptable, but, you know, it, it's not a reflection of your whole character. So that's why it's vital that parents really understand that concept. I look at the different categories of attachment and how that gets played out. Dismissing really value performance of their kids will get very angry, you know, classic one, that father who, you know, values hockey and wants his kid to be the best hockey player and kid has a lousy game and then that parent is yelling at that kid what happened and boy when I if I had your opportunity I would have been the best hockey player and just shames their child so again that's a child that comes to believe if I'm not the perfect hockey player then I'm a terrible person and my, my father really won't care about me so I introduce that concept try to look at then how each category of attachment is probably going to respond to their child I just really emphasize the repair, right? That's so important. So yeah, so that's one of the chapters where I try to expand on that concept using the various attachment categories. Yes. To think about Whitaker, he said, good enough parenting. (laughs) Yeah, thanks, Karen. That's exactly right. So that's a really important for all of us to know. It is about good enough parenting. We will all make mistakes, every one of us. And I think you can do the repair part anytime. Like you can go back and say, yeah, sweetie, I was thinking about, you know, when two days ago, I got so angry at you. And, you know, I'm really sorry about that. But, you know, it wasn't okay what you did, but I really should have, we should have been able to make up. You can go back to an episode that you feel, oh, I really blew that one as a parent, right? And repair it. Yeah, yes, yes. Well, later in the book, you talk about nature versus nurture. And on one hand, I think this is an important concept because we want to recognize what we were saying earlier as we were talking about neurobiology, that relational interactions shape the brain. On the other hand, there are kids that are predisposed to certain things. And sometimes I worry that those of us who love attachment theory and are so immersed in it think that, well, if you parent this certain way that would produce security, everything will be okay. And that's not true. (laughs) It's a good thing, but it's not everything. What would you like to share with listeners about that section of the book? So I really become quite interested, if not even fascinated, by this whole concept of genetics and epigenetics. Yes. So without a doubt, we are born with certain genetic propensities. Um, and that's everything from, you know, blue eyes, brown eyes, a certain nose, ears, whatever. So there are some things that we really cannot change because we're born with that little genetic markers. <clears throat> There are other things, though, that that environment can influence genes. So we may be, you know, you may have that infant that's born and you just know this is kind of a wired kid that is tense and can't, you know, doesn't respond well to warmth, affection, you know, kind of pulls back, whatever. I think that if you're a secure autonomous parent, don't personalize that. 
that you can really maximize your kid's potential to be, you know, calmer, to respond. I mean, if you have a kid that's just really sensitive, you know, to, again, sensory stimulation, you know, cannot tolerate touches, you know, hypersensitive to labels, all those kinds of things. If you are really aware of that and sensitive, you will very gradually introduce, you know, touch, warmth, affection to your child, even though that's a child that has really difficulty with that. The same thing, if you have a child that may be, you know, more on the shy side, you know, just a, you know, kid that kind of hides behind his mommy's skirts, right? And if you're a parent that's secure and aware of that, you can gently, you know, encourage your kid to come out, to talk to, you know, auntie so-and-so and gradually just kind of maximize your kid's ability to get more comfortable with people. So without a doubt, we do have genetic propensities. Now, there are other things like autism and certain really, again, we just don't know enough about this whole spectrum now that maybe environment can maybe, you know, modify that or at least, you know, maximize again that child's ability and relationships. But really, those are probably genetic or brain wiring mistakes. I don't even know what quite word to use, but so we may have to really accept that. But again, if you are secure or insecure, you will personalize it and you will do what you have to do to maximize your kid's potential. So as much as Karen, I agree that, you know, kids come with genetic propensities, I do think that, you know, the environment can either you know, allow those markers to become into full bloom or perhaps modify them. That's, I think that's, you know, probably, you know, new in the thinking about genetics. Uh, and again, it was a very new field, but I do think we have to probably respect that it is both nurture and nature, and we should not get into that conflict about is it nature, is it nurture, which is more important. Without a doubt, both really influence our development. Before we wind down, if you would like to share with listeners, you know, where you're, how to find your website, your first book and your second book, we want them to know both of those. Although we're focusing on your second book, you have another wonderful book. People could even look up the podcast that when you were on before talking about that book, but where can people get more information about you and about your work and about these ideas? Well, thanks, Karen. Yeah, so my website is AnnetteCustomTherapy.com. I'm just going to actually launch my second book in person because, you know, if, if you recall, when my book, yes. the first book was launched in 2020, it got canceled. So yes, really disappointing. So I'm actually doing a launch both at the publisher does a launch and then I'm launching my book at a bookstore called Caversham Books in Toronto. And it's also been a great promoter of my book. Uh, so the first book actually was one of its bestsellers. Fantastic. Yeah, I know. So I'm very pleased about that. So you can order the book, um, both books. You can order uh, online, um, certainly at uh, Amazon mm-hmm. or Caversham Books. Yes, or, we like to give an alternative of yeah. local businesses. So that's great. Yeah. And the, the uh, publisher, so Guernica Editions also, you can order the book. Is it the same publisher for both books? Yes, the same yes. publisher. Yes, okay, yeah. and, and that is... Um, Guernica. Okay, all right, I was trying to see here, great. So yeah. Google Annette 
person go to her website find these things and i'm just delighted that you are willing to come here for the attachment theory in action podcast and share some of your wonderful work and wisdom thank you well karen thank you for having me i i really enjoyed talking to you thank you so much Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchaddock.org, or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts for future episodes. If you enjoy our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please visit tkcchaddock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.